Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. And no matter what you think, you are never alone. Hello and welcome to Keepers of the Flame podcast, where together we weather the storm. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 10, Basic Genetics. This is a tale of BRCA and how understanding basic genetics can actually save your life. This is a true story. It is my story, and it is another one of those little puzzle pieces of education and of understanding something about you that can be used to make a difference. In the last episode, we talked about how breast density was important to understand. In this episode, we're going to talk about how understanding your own genetics is also a key factor and understanding that science matters. It matters past that classroom, past your career, but understanding what science is and how it can affect your life. In this episode, we're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of my personal tale, my story, and how it relates to understanding genetics. And we're going to also talk about what the current laws and pitfalls, along with some ethics intertwined. And then lastly, we'll talk about courage and how you can find it within yourself when you push forward past your barriers, you're able to actually change the world for the better, even if only a little bit. For those that do know me, this would be a shocker to hear, but backing it up a little bit, once upon a time, there was a time when I hated science. I absolutely hated it. I didn't really want anything to do with it. And those that know me know that that's crazy because I actually went on to major in biology. I loved it. It was my favorite subject, and I ended up teaching high school biology as well. But nonetheless, once upon a time as an adolescent, That was the subject that I really did not care too much for. And then in high school, a teacher changed it all for me. Went on to study it. Like I said, I went to Furman. I majored, got my BS in biology, graduated cum laude, yada, yada, yada. Became a teacher, living a normal life. I got married. I had a family. Everything about my life seemed and appeared normal. But there was one exception. The exception being that because I ended up liking biology and I studied it and I found value in it, that understanding of basic genetics, that was critical in saving my life. So in genetics, you have something called a pedigree, and that's basically a map where you can trace certain traits throughout your your personal family tree. This is the map where women are marked with circles and men are marked with squares, And then a line is drawn connecting the two when they're married and you have the kids that go down from there. If you were to look at a pedigree of my family, there was colon cancer spread throughout, either colon cancer or precancerous colon polyps. My dad had precancerous polyps removed in his 20s. My paternal grandmother and grandfather had issues and my maternal grandmother had colon cancer as well. Colon cancer was a thing in my family. And then knowing this piece of family history and then also a little bit more about genetics, I was 
in my biology classroom and I was teaching about chromosomal inheritance and I was talking about some of these mutations on chromosomes that if you have a, this particular mutation, then it can make you more at risk for whatever particular hereditary cancer. So for example, in regards to breast cancer, I was teaching that Okay, the BRCA1 gene is on chromosome 17, BRCA2 is on chromosome 13. They both made you more at risk for breast cancer, but that mutation in the gene was actually quite rare. It was only happened within 5 to 10% of patients. Okay, not an issue for me because my family history didn't really have any of that. But this is what got my attention. When, and I still remember in my classroom where I was standing when I, had, when I gave this, this lecture, I was talking about the colon cancer and how colon cancer, there is a gene mutation that is on chromosome 5 that can make you more susceptible to having colon cancer. And if you had a family history of it, then you were at greater risk. And that risk increased when a relative had it before the age of 50. Well, ding, 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 bells are going off, and I thought, this is something that I need to talk to my doctor about it. I went to my regular OB checkup, and they had a pink form, and they were asking us to fill out and give information about our family history for different kinds of cancers. They were doing a screening to figure out which of their patients were good candidates for genetic testing. Remember, in my pedigree, colon cancer, where it may have been a thing, if you were to do, examine my pedigree and follow it for either breast or ovarian cancer, y'all, there was nothing. Nobody in my family that I knew of at the time had either of those. It was crickets. I was not concerned about that gene in the least. But I knew that I needed to be proactive with colon cancer. So when I reviewed over this with my doctor, we decided, yes, I needed to watch for it. We started having colonoscopies done at the age of 30, which the recommended age is at 50. We were just being aware, watching things, being on top of it, being proactive. He also recommended that I was a good candidate for genetic testing because of that colon cancer history. Perhaps I did have in my DNA that colon cancer gene. If it was only going to examine colon cancer, I probably would have just done that one because as far as I was concerned... I didn't have to worry about breast cancer at all. Soon, my doctor called me with the results, and I was actually negative for the colon cancer gene. But surprise, surprise, I was positive for the BRCA2 mutation. We were both equally shocked. Where? Where on earth did this mutation come from? They were rare. It was only within 5 to 10% of the population, and my family history... Well, there was none. No women in my family that I knew of had breast or ovarian cancer. But here's the thing that I do know about genetics. These chromosomes that carry the mutation, so for example, BRCA2, BRCA2 is on chromosome 13. That is not your sex chromosome. You may remember back in, in high school biology where you learn about meiosis, Meiosis is, is a process of cell division. It's used for sexual reproduction, and it's great because it helps get us an increased genetic diversity. Meiosis happens in the formation of the gametes, so in creating the sperm or in creating the egg. And what happens is all human beings, we have 46 chromosomes or 23 pair. You get half of those from your mom and half 
from your dad. Half of them are in the egg, half of them are in the sperm. And when they unite, then you end up getting, and, and fertilization occurs, then you end up getting a diploid zygote. In other words, it has that full number of chromosomes. So regular human is diploid, has 46 chromosomes, right? But meiosis is the process of separating those chromosomes out so that the gamete or the egg or the sperm has only half of that number. So that when that sperm, 23, meets the egg, 23, and they unite, then you have a human developing with that grand total number of 46. That's a whole point of meiosis. Well, when that separation happens, when meiosis occurs, those chromosomes, again, there's pairs. So let's take the pair 17, chromosome pair 17. They split one chromosome pair goes into one egg and the other one goes into another. Those are your, they call them homologous chromosomes. Well, if you were to go into the nucleus of any one of your cells and you were to pull all of the chromosomes out, you can actually map them and they make the, it's something called a karyotype. Picture's worth a thousand words, which is very hard for me to do on the radio, but imagine taking 23 little bow ties and laying them out and mapping them in partners. You got two yellow ones, you're number one. You got two green ones, that's number two. You got two purple ones, that's number three. Whatever, you match them, or kind of like matching socks, right? You, you put them together and you line them up. Well, you have 23 pairs. And we know in science which one is chromosome number one and which one is chromosome number 12 and so forth. If you were to make this map, pulling out all of those little chromosomes from the nucleus and creating that picture, the 23rd pair, that is your sex chromosomes. Those are the ones that determine if you are male or if you're female. So females are XX, males are XY. I know I'm getting into too much information here, but my point is, if you were to hone in and look at that Chromosome number 13, that's the one I'm talking about because that's the one that has BRCA2, which is, which is my, my mutation. If I were to hone in on that one pair of chromosomes, one of my chromosome 13s came from the egg, came from my mom. The other chromosome, number 13, came from the sperm, came from my dad. So I have a mutation on one of them. That means that I got that gene from either my mother or my father. And this is the part that a lot of people don't realize. Yes, if your family history has a lot of women that have breast cancer, your mom, your sister, your aunt, if, if that is a thing in your family, then sure, you should be concerned or at least ask those questions because it is plausible that that gene may run in your family. But that doesn't mean that you're exempt from having the gene just because women in your family may not have breast cancer. Case in point, y'all, that's what happened to me. We suspect that the mutation that I inherited came down the paternal line, meaning that it came from that sperm, that it came from my dad. This could help explain in part why there wasn't a strong family history of women with breast or ovarian cancer in my pedigree. The men can carry it or have it, 
and not show any signs of it. Now, men that have the BRCA gene, specifically the BRCA2 gene, they, they are more at risk for prostate cancer, but their risk for prostate cancer, although elevated in comparison to other men, is not as high as the risk of women getting breast cancer with that gene. If we were to take another look at my pedigree and map out breast cancer, after I found out that I had cancer, that's when I learned that four generations back, on that paternal line, my father's father's mother, she had breast cancer. Y'all, I didn't even know her name, let alone her medical history or her genetic makeup. This was something that I learned well after the fact. But it makes me suspect even further that my mutation came down that paternal line going hidden for generations. Before I go into further detail of what this BRCA2 gene translates for me and for my family members, I want to first talk about what is cancer. Okay, y'all, cancer is the uncontrollable growth of cells that destroys your body tissue. Normally, what happens, or what should happen, is that when cells reach a certain point in their life cycle, they'll die off. They'll self-destruct. But cancer cells don't like to play by the rules. They don't die off. So here's, here's how BRCA comes into play. Everybody has the BRCA gene. This is kind of a problem with our colloquialisms here, but the truth of the matter is, is that everybody has the BRCA gene. And when it is working the way it's supposed to, when it is working properly, then what the BRCA gene does is it helps to repair DNA that causes cancer. It's a tumor suppressor. Its job, or one of the things that it does, is it helps to prevent cells from growing and dividing uncontrollably. BRCA2 gene is, is stopping the growth of those out-of-control cells. When somebody says, I quote, have BRCA2, and I myself am guilty of this, what we're really meaning to say is not that I have the BRCA2 gene, because we all do, what we mean to say is that we have a mutation in our BRCA2 gene. With this mutation, those tumor suppressors, they don't work properly and they don't repair that DNA and thus cancer develops. Those cells continue to divide and grow out of control. It's also important to remember, as we've already stated before, that the BRCA mutations themselves, that they're actually rare. It only happens in 5 to 10% of the population. However, those that do have that mutation are at an incredibly increased risk for getting breast cancer within their lifetime. Me, my risk went all the way up to 84% chance. I had, with this gene, or with this gene mutation, that an 84% chance of getting breast cancer within my lifetime. That's with BRCA. However, and even though BRCA is rare, anyone can get breast cancer regardless of whether or not they have this mutation or not. So even without those hereditary genes, people can still and still do get breast cancer. In fact, one out of every eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer. But somehow I was able to stumble upon the fact that I had this secret hiding within my own DNA. Somehow I was able to find out early that yes, I do in fact have this mutation and I need to watch very carefully. I need surveillance. 
when I got my genetic testing results back, we did I did the Calaris test with Myriad, and they analyzed 28 genes that were associated with hereditary cancers. Again, I was negative for the colon cancer gene, but the one that I was positive for, surprise, surprise, again, was BRCA2. This is how it translates for me. My cancer risk, lifetime risk for getting breast cancer was up to 84% compared to the general population's risk of 7%. Ovarian cancer, I was, I'm also at an increased risk for getting with this mutation. My risk for getting ovarian cancer within my lifetime is up to 27%. That's high in comparison to the general population risk of 0.7%. So the general population has a 0.7% chance of getting ovarian cancer within their lifetime. The BRCA2 mutation had me up to 27. What does this mean for my relatives? Well, this means that either my mom or my dad has the gene. And there's a 50% chance that my mom has the mutation. There's a 50% chance that my dad has it. Men that have the BRCA2 mutation, again, are more at risk for prostate cancer than the average male. Since one of my parents has this mutation, that means that all of my siblings would have a 50% chance of having that gene as well. And then depending on whether or not they had it would determine the risk factor for their children. My children? Well, we already know that I have this mutation, which means that my girls each have a 50% chance of inheriting this mutation as well. And if they do have the mutation, they too would have an increased risk of getting breast cancer within their lifetime. This is how meiosis works. When in the formation of my eggs that were used in creating my children, that chromosome number 13, those homologous chromosomes, the one that I got from mom, the one that I got from dad, one of mine is good and one of them has the mutation, they separated. So there's a 50% chance that my kids got an egg that had the mutated chromosome and a 50% chance that they got the one that didn't have that mutation. And the only way to know for certain would be if they eventually did genetic testing. We'll get into that in a minute. I always get that question, will you have your children tested? Well, that comes with its own can of worms, which we'll talk about in a minute. Let's bring it back to this moment when I found out that I have the actual BRCA2 mutation. They didn't tell me I had cancer. I didn't know that I had cancer. I just had an increased risk. So what I decided to do was to increase surveillance. My doctor and I came up with a plan. To screen for breast cancer, we would be doing mammograms and MRIs alternating every six months. And for ovarian cancer, there really is no good screening tool, but there are two things that they can do that's, I guess, better than nothing. It still really isn't a great answer, but it's all that they've got. So we were going to do them anyway. We were going to do ultrasounds, and they were going to examine my blood for something they call CA-125. And we were going to alternate those every six months. So I had my plan. Okay, I had the gene, I was going to watch for it, and I was going to watch things very, very closely because the five-year survival rate based off of breast cancer diagnostic stage, according to the American Cancer Society, is that the earlier you find it, the greater your chances of survival. So if you find it in stage zero or stage one, it's 
pretty close to 100%. It's over 90%. But if you don't find your breast cancer until much later, like stage four, then it's just over 20% five-year survival rate. So finding the cancer early, early detection is absolutely critical. Okay, so I know that I'm at an increased risk. Now I need to watch for it very closely. And so that's what we were doing. In August of 2016, I discovered that I had that genetic mutation. In November of 2016, we started right away with having a mammogram. And y'all, I wasn't even 40. I was 30. Well, I was 36 at diagnosis, so I must have been 35 when I found out that I had the mutation. And in November of 2016, we did that mammogram. Now, they couldn't see anything because young women have dense breasts. We talked about dense breasts in the previous episode, number nine, when we had Margie Singleton talk about breast density. Nonetheless, I myself had dense breasts at this time, and I was told that it's like driving through a snowstorm with your windshield wipers on turbo. They may be moving and you may be trying to see, but you can't see anything in dense tissue. And I think that's the case with me because they didn't see anything, and I know that I have dense breasts. So that was November of 2016. Six months later, I went in for my regular screening because I had this mutation for an MRI. And that's when I got the phone call that I actually had three masses. Three masses, but I don't have any family history of breast or ovarian cancer. I never felt a lump, I wasn't sick, and I was years away from the recommending screening age of 40. But nonetheless, I had three masses. Initially, they didn't know what these masses were because MRIs can be pretty sensitive machines. So then they sent me to have an ultrasound done to determine if it was solid or if it was fluid filled. If it's fluid, it could be a cyst. Turns out mine was solid filled after all, which meant that they were either fibroids or it was in fact cancer. They sent me to have a biopsy done. And when we got the results of the biopsy, it was confirmed that I had something called invasive ductal carcinoma. Shit, I not only had this gene, but I actually had cancer And I only found my cancer because I had done the genetic testing and I was on the lookout for it. I was doing that surveillance, which I would not have done considering that I thought I was at average risk prior to doing the testing. Here's a quick reminder of your breast basics. You have in your breast, you have these little lobules that create milk and they send the milk through little tunnels called the ducts and they connect all the way throughout to the nipple where the milk comes out when you're nursing. And you can have cancer develop either in those lobules or in the ducts. I had invasive ductal, which means that my cancer was found in those little tunnels. Now, there's a difference also between in situ versus invasive. If somebody says that they have DCIS, that means that they have cancer in the ducts that is contained inside that tunnel. Whereas unlike Me, I had invasive, meaning that that my cancer had eaten a hole outside of that tunnel and was starting to leak into the regular breast tissue. When I did surgery and had my tissue removed and I had a bilateral mastectomy, which means that they took both of my breasts away, I had both of them removed because I would continue to have an 84% chance of getting cancer in any breast tissue that I had remaining. And I didn't want to go through this again. So if the gene had 
proved itself worthy of its reputation. And not only did I have that mutation, but voila, there you got cancer. I wasn't doing this again. So if 84% chance in any breast tissue, get it out. Doing it once, I'm not doing it again. That's why I opted to do the bilateral mastectomy. But during surgery, they also examine your lymph nodes and then they send them off to be biopsied as well. Turns out some slippery fast son of a guns made it to my lymph node and I had what they call a micromet. It was one millimeter in size. So not only did I find out by happy accident that I had the BRCA2 mutation with zero family history, not being sick, never feeling a lump, then I found out that I had those three masses and those three masses were actually cancer. Cancer that had eaten a hole into, out of the ducts into regular breast tissue and a tiny little bit even made it to the lymph nodes. I was very blessed and very lucky that I did genetic testing when and how I did because it set me off on my path to be able to find my cancer early, which we know, according to the American Cancer Society, is absolutely critical for that five-year survival rate. So I had my bilateral mastectomy done. I opted to do reconstruction. I was also recommended I needed to have chemotherapy and radiation and a hysterectomy. I had all that done, y'all, in a 10-month period. In 10 months, I had the mastectomy, reconstruction, chemotherapy, radiation, and a hysterectomy. The hysterectomy, because... Individuals with the BRCA2 mutation are also at an increased risk for ovarian cancer, and ovarian cancer is considered the silent killer of women because oftentimes you don't find it until it's in its late stages. I didn't want to deal with that. My gene already proved to me that cancer could grow in my body, so I was done with that. I wanted to reduce my risk of reoccurrence as much as I possibly could. Understanding of genetics, understanding of family history, and that these chromosomes could be inherited from either side, maternal or paternal side, and what does that mean? What is the risk factors for me? Understanding all this basic genetics, that is what ended up saving my life. It got me to find my cancer early, to set out on, okay, let's be proactive with our surveillance, and then it helped me make the best decisions for me and for my body and my family. Let's talk about some current laws and pitfalls and ethics rolled up in there. You know, a lot of people will ask me, what about your kids? Are you going to have them tested? Surely you, if they have a 50% chance, you want to know if they're going to have this mutation as well, right? Well, yes, I would love to know for certain because I think that information is meant to empower you, not to cripple you. But you still have to contend with some of these current laws. As currently written, my girls are entitled to have screenings done 10 years prior to my age at diagnosis. I was 36. So at the age of 26, they're allowed to have screenings done. Insurance would have to cover that. But if they do genetic testing and they are positive for that gene, then they could be denied life insurance. If they're negative, for the gene, if they're negative for that genetic mutation, which is what, of course, I'm hoping for, but if they're negative for it, then they would go back into the general population's risk and they would have to wait until they're 40 for a baseline. Well, anybody can get cancer regardless of whether or not you have this mutation or not. Remember, it's one in eight women. 
So at this point in time, the way the laws are written is I would recommend for my kids, okay, get the screening done, use me and my story starting at the age of 26, get your testing done, know your risk, know that you have a 50% chance of having it, but live your life. And then once you get to the other side of 35-ish, then consider if it's in your best interest at that time. Another pitfall I just kind of mentioned a second ago was that those that do have this mutation, they can be denied life insurance. That information might deter people from actually having the testing done. I found this out when I shared my genetic code here with my family and said, hey, you're at risk as well. At least consider asking these questions. Be vigilant. My cousin decided that she wanted to know. So she went ahead and did the testing as well. Turns out she is negative for it, thank goodness. But along with that, she brought with me an important or she brought to me an important piece of information and let me know that the whole issue about the life insurance, which I had completely overlooked and forgotten about prior. And I paused and I asked myself, would that have changed things for me? If I knew that I could be denied life insurance, would I not have done the the testing? Well, if I didn't do the testing, I would have needed the life insurance because cancer would have killed me. So it's kind of a catch-22. I, What is the answer? I can't tell you that. All I can tell you is these are the pitfalls. These are the things in, that you need to be aware of. In regards to life insurance or insurance of any kind, you don't want someone, taking the, the insurance perspective for a minute, you don't want someone to take out a million dollar life insurance policy as soon as they're told that they have two weeks to live. That's not fair. But also, I mean, this is my genetic code. So is there an element of, for lack of a better way of putting it, genetic discrimination that could be going on? I don't know. I think that it's just important to bring these issues up so that maybe we can work towards finding a happy medium. Accessibility to genetic testing is another issue. That's another hurdle that people have to contend with. It's expensive, and most insurance companies do not cover it at all. My max out-of-pocket, I was told, was going to be $375, which, by the way, is the best $375 I have ever spent in my entire life. But that's not the full cost of genetic testing. Genetic testing can be over six grand. I got an explanation of benefits from my insurance company, of course, denying coverage because like many insurance companies, they don't cover genetic testing. But thankfully, Myriad, the ones that did my my testing, they kept true to their initial contracted amount with me. And hands down, that was the best money that I've ever spent in my entire life. That being said, I recognize that it's not going to always work that same way for everybody. So accessibility to testing itself is definitely a thing. Another issue that you may have heard of was a court case between Myriad and the Association for Molecular Pathology. It is in regards to the patent of the Bronca debate. So basically, here's what happened. Myriad patented, patent, well, I cannot say this word, patented, there I go, the Bronca mutation. And people were outraged. How can you patent my DNA? This is my DNA. So here are the two sides to the court case, two sides to the story here. The Association for Molecular Pathology, they argued that the genes are decisions made by nature, 
not Myriad. Therefore, Myriad should get credit for isolating them, but that that wasn't worthy of a patent. Myriad, on the other hand, argued that the process of isolating the genes outside of the human body requires human ingenuity, and therefore it should warrant a patent. There was this big court case, and it was all over the news, and the holding was that naturally occurring DNA sequences, even when isolated from the body, cannot be patented, but artificially created DNA is patent eligible because it's not naturally occurring. That was the holding. So if you've heard about that, that's, that's what Myriad was in the, in the news for. Nonetheless, that is the testing that I had done, and that is what unmasked my BRCA2 mutation. Okay, so we talked a little bit about my story and basic genetics and also some of these current laws and pitfalls. Lastly, I just want to touch on courage. I think this is really important to make sure I keep hitting on again and again and again because, y'all, people would tell me, Joyce, you're so strong. You're just fearless. You're so brave. But I felt like a fraud because I was terrified. And what I came to know is that there's a difference between being afraid and having courage. Courage is moving forward with what you know needs to be done despite that fear piggybacking and weighing you down. It was okay to be afraid. At some point in our lives, in all of our lives, we're going to experience adversity like we have never known before. It may not necessarily be the issue that I was faced with, with a cancer diagnosis, but adversity is bound to hit us all. There is bound to be a moment in our lives where we feel like we are up against a mountain, that everything that we've previously relied on just gets shaken, and we feel like we've been in this figurative street fight, and we just don't know how to rise. That's going to happen. Why? Because we're human. And here's the truth, y'all. I had many, many, many meltdowns myself. And that perfectionist, that overachiever, that go-getter that I was, I fell flat on my face. I was afraid. I felt helpless. I thought, I thought I was going to die. I even wrote my kids a letter. When I tucked them in the night before my surgery, I thought I was tucking them in for the last time. In fact, the day of surgery, y'all, I would always talk about how I wanted to leave behind snow and this big metaphor, increase snowflakes. Each, each, each snowflake was its own individual act of kindness. Okay, big metaphor, blah, blah, blah. The day of surgery, they're calling for freaking snow in Georgia. Ironic? Hmm. Later on, I thought that I was done. Come to find out, I ended up needing radiation after all. And when I got that news, I had an epic meltdown of my own. It was so bad, I had to pull over into a parking lot, and I was losing my shit. So bad that strangers were coming up to my door, banging on the window, asking me, if I was okay. And I was not. But here's the thing. You don't need to know how to move forward in moments like that. You just need to believe that you will. My ending hadn't been written and I would rise up again. And you guys can too. Whatever adversity hits you in life, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and know that it's okay if you're afraid, but you're going to make it through. Take a deep breath anyhow. You have the courage to face your own trials in life, whatever they are. And what's more is that you have the power to change the world and you do that one step at a time. We are all able to do that. We are all that one person. Every single day we make decisions 
to help push forward and bring about change. You help a friend with a flat tire. You teach a child who hated school. You bring dinner to a neighbor. You teach. You advise. You create. You love. You befriend the lonely. You care for the elderly. You are. You do. You live. And you change the world. No action is too small. And know the power of one. And recognize that you are already that one. And again, as I've said before, it's not that you could be or that you might be one day. You already are. You just have to decide what kind of actions and thoughts to push forward into the world. We can rise from our falls. Some of the things that we've done here locally, we have done the Race for the Cure. We have done some local fundraisers as well, uh, Cards for a Cause. We started a swimathon with the kids to raise funds for those that are in need of, of early detection or early screenings and may not be able to afford it. We did that and um, raised those funds for a local charity. And we continue to try to put out the information to help you better weather your own storm because together we will weather it. We are not alone. What about you? What are some of the things that you can do? Well, you can share what you've learned about genetics, about breast density, about the power of one, and you are that one. You can understand science, the laws, the pitfalls, and you can also understand psychology and recognize that emotions are going to be a piece of this too. You can work to change the laws in your own state. And you can address some of these pitfalls or gaps that we've talked about. No one and no action is too small. I want to end with sharing with y'all another excerpt from a manuscript that I've been working on called Finding Courage. This excerpt is The Verdict. I wrote, The verdict was out. Was I enough? Were my words and advice enough to sustain me when I got blindsided and pummeled once more? How true and helpful was this advice? The verdict? Yes, yes, and yes again. I had painstakingly learned these themes within my journey, but after having been forced to lean on them myself and trust in their validity when life knocked me down once again, I came to believe in them even more. They grabbed my hand and helped to lift me up from the callous, unforgiving pavement. I wasn't without abrasions, bruises, and lacerations from the fall itself. And standing to my feet again was sure as hell one of the most difficult things that I have ever done. But it was easier when I trusted that it could be done. Accept all of yourself. Let go of what you can't control and shift your attention to that which you can. Make decisions with the information available to you at the time and do the best you can. Love yourself when you fall. Get back up and sculpt goodness from those shadows. Know that you are enough. Emotional scars and healing are just as real as the physical ones. You don't need to know how to move forward. You just need to believe that you will. Ask for help if you need it. You matter and you can. You do have courage. We all do. It's true. Early detection undeniably saved my life. Still, I'd also come to realize that strength resides inside us all. We can be courageous and sail through uncertainty, persevere from tragedy, and shape our world for the better with our newly found perspective and strength. These opportunities are afforded to us all, not just a select few. We all struggle with something. Therefore, we all have the potential for our inner strength to rise up and guide us. Moana is one of my favorite movies. 
Prior to my diagnosis, I'd watch it with my girls, root for Moana as she continued to inch forward through trial after trial and applaud her for her unwavering determination and bravery. Courage like that was what I admired in others, but never before saw in myself. Yet when I watched it again, I paid more attention to the scene towards the end when our fearless Moana gave the ocean back the heart of Tefiti. Moana too experienced fear, sadness, and hopelessness. She felt defeated and wanted to give up. She questioned her own strength and ability to be enough. She was human. We're all human. We all felt that defeat in our lives at one point in time or another. And we all have courage nestled somewhere inside of us too. Even if we doubt its existence, it's there inside of us all the same. Fear is to be expected in life. No single person is immune. However, marching onward while that fear piggybacks and weights you down takes courage. That is a choice we can all make, choosing to let fear keep us down or choosing to inch forward. We cannot escape fear, but we can choose to rise up and not let it control us. We all have that true beauty within us. We can all paint the world and work towards making it a better place. Does this mean that when we dare to be courageous, we will never fall, never bleed, and never fail? Absolutely not. The point is not to fear failure, rather to have courage to try, to move forward when you do fail. Admiral William McRaven gave a speech in August of 2017. He even wrote a book called Make Your Bed. In his August 2017 speech, he spoke about life and perseverance by using the Navy SEAL night swim and trainings as a metaphor. He said, quote, If a shark begins to circle your position, stand at your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summon up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. If I've learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope. One person can change the world by giving people hope. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often, but if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. That's what McRaven wrote. I never asked for cancer, and if I was given the chance for a do-over, to write a different story for myself, sure, I'd likely say thanks, but no thanks. I've heard other people speak of their trials and how if they were given the chance for a do-over, they'd choose the same adversity all over again. I am not that person. I am pretty sure that I would say, keep that shit the hell away from me. But that's not how life works. We don't always get to pick and choose the events that cross in front of us. If a tree fell across our path, we didn't have control over the placement of that obstacle. If we did, it wouldn't fucking be there. However, we do get to decide on how to proceed. We can choose to go around it or find another path. We can climb over it or we can rip the chainsaw out and clear the way ourselves. How we move forward and our perspective on the journey itself, those are things that we do get to choose. I didn't choose cancer and I still struggle with the emotions that accompany that beast. I am fearful of it coming back. I am angry and heartbroken that I had to live through such a physical and emotional tortures in the first place. However, that's not all that I am. I am determined 
I am hopeful. I believe in the power of goodness and the potential residing within each of us. I believe that I will move past my own pain, and I have faith that in being vulnerable with my own ordeal, my children and their children's children will learn these things as well. Early detection is critical, and rise up after you fall. I don't get to choose what genes my girls inherited from me, but I can work towards creating a world that I'd like for them to inherit. So yes, it is my hope that as McRaven once wrote, what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. For me, what started as pain and terror with a cancer diagnosis will somehow help us all in finding courage. Thank you for joining us here today. For more information, check out our education link on our website, togetherweweather.org. Continue asking your own questions, being your own number one advocate. Understand genetics. Understand some of these laws and pitfalls and gaps and perhaps even work towards solving them. I'm looking forward to speaking with you all again soon. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.